in my nearly 40 years in rangelands, I've never seen anything uh, like this last drought in New South Wales. When you are healing the land, that's got to have a positive impact on your attitude and your general mental well-being. Just the healing the land process is a very, very deeply human thing. Right, I come up. That'll do for a start. Up you go, boys and girls. G'day listeners, this is the Pastoral Potty, proudly brought to you by the folks at Western Local Land Services. I'm your host, Edgar Grester. The rangelands of Western New South Wales can be a challenging place to farm in. Historical overgrazing has caused major dust storms and erosion, and with farmers having just been through one of the toughest droughts in living memory, repairing landscapes to be rain-ready is critical. From grading contours to constructing ponding banks, it's all about slowing the flow when the next rain comes to give the land a chance for a drink. But before you get out any tools, rehabilitating the rangelands starts with having an awareness of our impact on landscape function and prioritising what's achievable. And today's guests all agree that focusing on landscape rehabilitation is not only good for the land, it's good for their own health too, especially during tough times. Luke and Sarah Mashford on Kataupa Station, which is approximately 230 kilometres to the northeast of Broken Hill. Now that we're starting to come out of this drought a bit, stock has started to come home, so we're we're back to about 50 to 60 percent stocking rates. But we mainly run Dooney Merinos and Pole Herefords when season allows us, and Rangeland goats. In 2012, when we first bought the place, it was coming out of, you know, the 2010-11 La Nina seasons, you know, fantastic rainfall through central Australia, and the ground cover was amazing. And So when we came here, we, you know, we knew what it was going to look like when things were really, really good. We had a massive freak storm come through in, uh, I reckon it would have been 2013, and it dumped like near on a foot of rain over a week. And the heaviest of the fall was a bit under eight inches of rain in under one hour. And we then just completely seen the country carve up, even with a reasonable good amount of ground cover. And it was like, wow. If it was in a suburban area or more populated farming country, you know, it would have just completely decimated farms and, you know, probably near on natural disaster declaration. But we looked at it and just went, crikey, this is a big thing here. So we then started noticing swamps that are starting to dry out. You know, we were noticing these never fail flats and Mitchell grass flats weren't quite recovering as quickly as what we had seen previously. So I think that was a really good you know, major event for us to scratch our nut a bit and go, we really need to knuckle down here and get a plan of attack. Rangeland erosion is always going to happen. You can't stop it. But the accelerant was definitely put on in that 1890s, early 1900s. And when you start looking at stocking rates and the local graziers were dictated to on how many sheep per acre they were to run. Now, if they didn't oblige by that, pretty much their, their leases were removed from them. So they were under government pressure to, to do it. What we see now in front of us is, is pretty much the legacy of what a lot of that stuff's been happening for over the last, you know, well, since, since let's call it 1900. 
I'm Paul Theakston, located in Cobar, and I work for the Western Local Land Services, and I'm the Rangeland Rehabilitation Officer. Paul works with landholders to remediate degraded landscapes across the region, which stems from historical overgrazing and drought. One of the first big impacts was the Federation drought. So that was a massive drought that occurred in the late 1800s, early 1900s. It was probably the first degradation event on a massive scale out here. So to give you an example, before that drought, there was about 15.4 million sheep on the land. After that drought in 1903, that had declined to 4 million. So since then, the stock numbers haven't risen to that pre-drought level ever. So what it shows is there's been a massive decline in the productivity of this country. And that big degradation event, that occurred because there was a lot of stock on the ground. Also, there was a rabbit plague. And you combine that with a drought and there was massive destruction. Every property back then was affected by it. Another thing is the way stock behave. A lot of times when stock are walking in and out of water points, they walk in single file. And that causes a pad on the ground, and that pad is slightly lower than the surrounding surface. So it's basically causing a straight channel through the land. And when it does rain, the, the surface water flows across the land, hits that channel and concentrates its energy and rips out the soil and becomes a gully. It starts off small, but eventually it can become a gully. Another issue that we have is just infrastructure. So the more infrastructure you put on the place, the more potential for degradation. So for example, roads, fence lines, pipelines, power lines, anything that causes a straight line across the, the land, that, that can potentially cause degradation or erosion. What are some of the physical impacts that are happening on the landscape? There was a lot of dust storms from the early 1900s up to the late 1940s talk to some of the really old people out here and dust storms were just an everyday occurrence then. When you start getting erosion across the landscape, the land's just not functioning like it should. It's not absorbing water and when it does rain, the rain just rushes off the country. It doesn't hang around, it doesn't soak in. So whenever you have a rill or a gully, it sucks water into it. So it becomes like a stormwater drain and it drains the, the land as fast as possible. It takes the water off the country and it's gone. Like it either might flow into a creek which causes sedimentation of that creek or, or a river. So all that soil is getting lost from the property and getting deposited into a river, creek or a wetland. So there's impacts on the actual farm but also offsite impacts as well. So for example, around the, the Darling River, there's been a study just recently done on the number of erosion gullies going into that river and there's thousands and thousands of active erosion gullies emptying into that river causing that river to choke up with sediment basically. This study showed that back in the paddle steamer days the average waterhole depth along the Darling was about three and a half metres deep and now the average waterhole depth in the Darling is only two metres deep. I mean there's probably a number of reasons why but one of the reasons is because of the sedimentation of that river channel. A lot of our problems at home is this uh, gully head formation where old waterways, you know, existing wetlands that have pretty much had the plug pulled out of them. And to be on the ground and looking at it, you know, gully heads, it almost looks like a, like a cancerous cell eating its way uphill. 
I guess that's the first thing you really see in the paddock or up in the plane or on satellite imagery or whatever is the broad-scale dehydration virtually that is associated to this uh, type of erosion, whether it be gully head, you know, sheet erosion, wind erosion. You know, it's pretty much seeing dead trees, dead plants. The landscape just does not, it's not the picture that should be painted, yeah. When we came here, we started a 10-year property improvement plan. And obviously, if seasons allow us to stick to that plan, one of the main ones that was in the sort of the top five that we needed to address was this uh, sheeting erosion that we were, were calling it back then. So it, we were a little bit aware of local erosion and dehydration issues, but our knowledge and uh, the know-how on how to address it was very small. To help locals like Luke get the support and education they need, LLS have a number of rangeland rehabilitation programs available, which include financial assistance as well. One of those is the EMU program, which stands for Ecosystem Management Understanding. Here's co-founder Hugh Pringle. EMU is totally voluntary, so anybody who puts their hand up actually wants you to be on their, on their property, rather than you pushing yourself on or promoting your program to them. But I think even more profound than that is we operate right from the outset by asking questions and being guided by the priorities and the knowledge of the, of the local pastoralist who is in, in effect the best expert for that piece of land because they live in the landscape, they live in the ecosystem, they're part of it and right from the outset build the foundations of our project with them based on their knowledge. Their knowledge is demonstrably the strong foundations from which we can then build reciprocal learning um, by walking and talking, flying the landscape together. I think that initial clear demonstration that we're not there to point fingers or to preach or to teach, we're there to help the landholder better organise their knowledge and then through our discussions together, the partnership of the local expertise and the scientific stuff makes a really strong brew. I like your brew analogy. <laughs> I actually found um, that one from a, an Aboriginal fellow up in the Wanambulgumbara mob up in the Kimberley. And he said, it's like a good cup of tea. We start with the black tea and then we put some milk in just right. And then it's a great brew. I know that every project is different and unique, but are there any common things that farmers are dealing with? Can you touch on those? There definitely are. The one that's everywhere and is right up there in importance is competition from kangaroos for pasture until a couple of years ago. The stocking rate from kangaroos was literally five to ten times that of livestock, and you just can't run a commercial, sustainable business when non-productive animals are eating most of your feed. There are some things that can be done. For instance, fencing all surface water points, earth tanks, so that when you decide to rest, recover an area, you actually are not just resting it from livestock, you're resting it from heavy grazing by kangaroos as well. It won't be perfect, but it will make it far easier for you to recover pastures that are looking a bit tired and need a bit of a spell. 
The other major issue is road rivers. That's where poorly sited, poorly installed and poorly maintained roads basically cut further and further down into the landscape, sucking water from upslope and diverting it away from its natural path and then often firing it like a fire hose at the next watercourse, turning a beautiful, productive watercourse into an ugly gully system. That is everywhere across southern Africa and Australia where I've worked in the outback. It's a shocker and we've recently put out a national manual on outback roads management that I'm pretty sure LLS will have copies of at their district offices. It's a major issue. Also related to erosion is two processes that go hand in hand. One is scalding of large areas of sheet flow that become bare, stripped of topsoil and unproductive. They're called pans in New South Wales. Anyone who's worked with me will know that that's a bugbear for me because pans are natural and scalds are not. And scalds are caused by management, pans are caused by nature. The other that goes with it is gully formation. And many people think that gullies are caused by excess runoff. Most gullies are actually caused by cutting the landscape, often a road or a cattle or livestock path, a culvert on a main road cut below the land surface. It's the cut in the landscape that creates the initial nick point and the condition of the landscape above, in other words, accelerated runoff, is the accelerator pedal of the gully erosion and not the start. And most pastoralists understand that gullies are formed and cut backwards towards the hinterland. So whenever you see a gully head, that's the waterfall cliff face you know that it's being driven from water coming to you and you know that it was started by a cut in the land further down the gully channels those are really major issues and I've been focusing on the gully work and working in combination with Paul Thigston and he's doing the big broad scalded areas and we've been learning an incredible amount off each other and we both are better at our jobs for this last five years of working together we provide a better service because we've learnt off each other and off the local pastoralists. Whilst Hugh and Paul have seen an uptick in landholders getting involved, there's still a lot of work to be done to get more on board. I suppose the barriers is the issue of scale. Like out here, the properties are fairly large. You know, we're talking tens of thousands of hectares. So where do you start? One of the things is awareness of the issue. Like oftentimes you see an erosion gully and you think that's always been there. That's part of the landscape. That's the way the landscape works. So just for example, infrastructure causes a lot of erosion, like I was mentioning before. and Oftentimes people see an erosion gully and they think, oh, that's always been there. But when you start looking at it, you figure out, oh, no, that was a road or a track. And it might have been a track 120 years ago, and it's lost to memory that it ever was a track. But when you start looking at it from the air, you can see that it's straight, dead straight. And then that's sort of one of the clues that, oh, no, that's, that's not natural. A straight line like that is probably an old track. So... Just an awareness of the issue is a big thing. So it's good to come to field days and just even talk to other landholders that have been involved 
in the rangeland rehabilitation program. You know, the Western Division is a big place, but it's actually a fairly small place when, it, when you're talking about the community. Oftentimes, people will approach me for a specific issue, a specific problem. Sometimes it's something around ground tanks, or like their watering points. So I just go out there and concentrate on what they want me out there for, and then focus on that issue, try to improve that issue, and then hopefully it grows from there. Again, reflecting on the landholders that you've worked with who've successfully taken those first steps, have you got any thoughts on what helped people get across the line? Like when people see soil erosion, it's very obvious that it's there. The causes aren't obvious, but the fact that it's eroding is obvious. And so when they call me and say, oh, how can we fix it? And you do a project and it actually, you see it on the ground, like you actually see the dozer or the grader constructing a bank. And at the end of the day, there's something concrete, something physical there. And then, so the next time it rains, which could be a long time out here, sometimes it's a year, but the next time it rains, they're invested in going and seeing what's what's happened. And if it's, oh, well, hopefully it's a positive result. <laughs> yeah, then they become more invested, more interested in going further. I think that's, that's always a benefit, having a little project to start with. It goes back to that awareness. Once you start seeing that those erosion gullies are not part of the natural system, that they've been initiated by infrastructure or they've been initiated by stock pads or something like that, or water point placement, once the awareness is there, then you start seeing this erosion everywhere and so yeah it's once you start being aware of how the landscape should work and how it's not working now yeah that's one of the steps in fixing it so landholders approach us and ones that i can see that really want to go forward and really get a handle on this whole landscape ecology i funnel them towards the ecosystem management understanding approach what pastoralists often don't fully appreciate is the long-term landscape changes that have been happening almost certainly well underway before they ever turned up on that piece of ground. And by explaining to them when you're walking and talking that, no, this isn't a creek, it's a gully, and it was formed by this, and if we go up here, we're almost certain to find where it's got to now. And do you want to save what's behind it that's going to go or not or that a scald is actually not a natural pan it's actually a sheeted subsoil and if we rip it up and get the water into the soil get the raindrops into the soil as close to where they landed as possible you suddenly get the pastoralist understanding that this isn't all functioning beautifully but there are solutions and it's that realization that you know we've got areas which are more like a tiled roof with downpipes than sponges and we can restore the sponginess restore the raindrop productivity efficiency there's a massive realization and breakthrough in terms of changing mindsets and accepting historic degradation knowing that it's just a matter of priority setting. Everything is fixable within an unlimited budget, time or money, but that's not realistic.
So with that realization and then the priority setting process, that really does make a massive shift in people's attitude to change and major transforming change of the way they look at and manage their landscapes. For many landholders, the scale of erosion issues is a major factor. And Hugh says it's all about prioritising what's achievable in the short term. Pastoralists are time poor. They don't have big workforces like they used to. Therefore, the priority setting is absolutely fundamental. And that's driven by the pastoralists. I discuss the issues with them and we talk about bang for the buck. That's one thing is which projects are going to most quickly improve your production per hectare. So that's one thing is where's the bang for the buck. But probably just as importantly, and also emphasised by some pastoralists, is what is the cost of not fixing this project? Is there a major impact on your business, on your productivity per hectare, on your drought durability, if you don't do this project? And so balancing those two, we don't do it formally. We discuss it. We discuss it. We discuss pros and cons together. But at the end of the day... I don't ever touch the pens. They make the decision of which of their list are going to be first cabs off the rank, both in terms of specific projects and also bigger picture issues like grazing management or broad-scale road rivers. They make that decision. And then they don't just dismiss everything else. They park it. They park that stuff and it liberates them because they know it's down, but it's not part of my focus. My focus is this, this and this because that's what I think I can do in the next year, next two years, three years. And that kind of takes away the paralysis by being overwhelmed by so many issues, jumbling around, banging inside your brain. You actually simplify it, map them, describe them, discuss them, and then park The majority of them in most cases. You say, I know you're there, I will get to you, but I'm going to focus on this and this because it's all I can do in the next year or whatever your preferred planning time frame is. Luke Mashford has gone through the EMU program with Hugh Pringle and implemented a suite of earthworks to address various issues across his property. Getting the correct knowledge and the correct techniques, and, and that was one of the biggest things for us, was knowledge first, and Hugh will call it, you know, going to the toolbox to pull out the correct tool. So we had to identify through the EMU process, what was our best return on investment going into this rehydration projects now. So for us, we looked at gully head formation, we looked at broad scale water ponding of 10 centimetres and contour lines. So once we started identifying that, we could then go, right, oh, well, we need, you know, substantial size grader, what type of earth moving gear is required? And then we can start addressing the issues. Now, I get a lot of visitors that come to home now and mates and, and family members and all that, and they look at it and sort of get it all. But it's pretty important that they start from that ground, that grassroots level of mapping, planning, you know, collating all that information and then executing under the guidance of Paul Feakston and the likes of Hugh Pringle. So 
plenty of people come here and, and look at it and go, yeah, wow, we can go home and, and have a fiddle around with this type of stuff. But I always encourage them to to have a have a fair income crack at this the whole mapping and the baseline assessment before any work start at all. Luke's words of warning come from lived experience because it's through failure that Luke has learned some valuable lessons. When we pick at our priority area, you know, you have that in the back of your mind. How can we reduce, you know, exposure to failure? <laughs> and um, so the. Uh, the, the planning and the mapping and that sort of eliminates a good percentage of it but there's always you know we've got humans involved and we like stuff and stuff up so several projects that we've done have been in paddocks that haven't quite had adequate fencing to them so when we don't have the uh, TG like the total grazing pressure uh, control uh, that's that's a big thing and we learnt that really early on that we do a project and especially during the drought you know, the chances during the drought of picking up 5 mil compared to 55 mil was a fair bit better. But with these works, that was enough to get the start of recovery. But if we did have any domestic livestock left, we'll face some massive pressures of emus and kangaroos. And, that, and that's the brutal honesty of it, is they were perishing and starving. So that uh, first initial point of recovery for rehydration wasn't really getting the kickstart that it needed. So total grazing pressure fencing, um, and, and that's completely different to complete exclusion fencing. So it was one of the biggest lessons earlier on, and now pretty much as we're fencing paddocks into these TGP-type programs, we then look at you know what type of erosion control or rehydration techniques you want to do inside that area. So I think that was that was one of the the biggest ones. And another one is just not being too greedy. And when I say that is like, don't be too greedy in how much infiltration you want to try and achieve in the first rain because it's just not good for anything. And uh, but we just learnt that as the story unfolded. Like we started doing these works in twenty sixteen. So soil moisture in the in the ground for, to actually have some type of moisture in the soil for compaction, actually being able to construct the banks and the intervention that's needed. Well, there wasn't no moisture available at all in the ground. It was pretty well completely cooked. So you just have to prioritise where you go and what parts of the landscape will let you help it in the early stages. What's it been like when you're on the farm and they've gone through the mental homework, the head homework to sort of itemise the priorities and then you can kind of see that paralysis shift and what's it been like when you've observed that in landowners? It's invigorating to see people getting really fired up and focused and during this massive unprecedented drought out here near Whitecliffs, people were short of time short of money, cash flow. Some had banks or stock agents knocking at their door, and yet they were buying earth-moving equipment because they could see that in the grants that they got to do one project, they could see even from a really miserable season how much feed they grew. These guys were struggling, and yet they were so committed to getting on and rehydrating, and they call it being rain-ready. They know that when it does rain, and it is now, they're going to benefit. 
instead of the raindrops being damaging, the raindrops are actually going to grow feed. And this enthusiasm is partly because of the emu processes enabling rather than putting a, a nose ring in the pastoralists and dragging them along a best practice preaching approach. It's just brilliant to see. You know, it's a real credit to these pastoralists that under the, all the stresses that they were under, they've made major commitments to restoring the productivity of their landscapes and their ecosystems. The positivity that people were getting out of these type of works during that drought period was just you know, amazing. You know, you're going up there every day feeding stock for, you know, two and a half years and, you know, you just, it just becomes, you know, so continual. But to break it up with just a little patch of green grass and uh, you just go, wow, you know, that's right. It can be like this, you know, and, and even our kids, you know, I've got three kids here and, and the, the youngest one, well, really couldn't probably remember the seasons, you know, Ford's paddock being knee high in Mitchell grass. You know, it started raining, it's like, oh, geez, how cool is this? You know, everything's um, doesn't just have to die out here, things can get fat. <laughs> so, that was one of the biggest things to see that small amounts of intervention could impact communities, you know, families, and, you know, just a general uplifting spirit to it all. As our community in this Paxata Whitecliffs area, it was a fantastic project that landed on the ground and got on its feet in pretty desperate times. And, you know, it sort of became that central happy place <laughs> that gave a lot of people that bit of a boost and that bit of a kick along that people needed in that period. When people talk about the rangelands out here and and, uh, you know, I think what it covers 70% of Australia and, uh, you know, so you sort of feel, you know, we need to pull our socks up a bit and, and become a bit more sustainable, resilient, reliable, you know, which we're always trying to strive to get to. But when these little programs come along and, and you know, it could be just as simple as blocking off one gully head and then you go, wow, you know, we, we can get back to the good going again rather quickly. And another thing is with it, and the kids have picked all this up as well, that it's not this commercial, you know, cash cow that you're really trying to, you know, drag every cent out of the land. You're really focusing on restoring them key ecosystems that can start repairing during dry times and getting that little bit of seed happening and tiny bit of germination so that when, you know, we're going from 5 mil to 20 mil of rain, you know, the seeds there can spread. You know, the environment wins, the landholder wins, livestock, native, you know, herbivores, everything. All of these people I'm working with are innovative and they will think, and I encourage them, they will think, no, there's a better way of doing it than Hugh's way. And my way is probably pirated off the last group of pastoralists I've been working with and getting good ideas. And I, I really encourage them to innovate and experiment and talk to each other and visit each other's places. It's just brilliant to see how much of the landscape is being repaired and 
increasing plant productivity per hectare and that's going to improve the pastoral productivity per hectare. One innovation that Hughes pastoralists have been experimenting with is reinstating the natural movement of water through the landscape. By landscaping curves or contours using earth-moving equipment, they're not diverting water from creeks or other properties, but rather slowing the flow to help rehydrate landscapes. And the earthworks aren't just functional, they look beautiful too. If you see restoration works and they're not beautiful, almost like art, then they've probably been done wrongly. Because what you're trying to do is fit nature, not fight it. And so the beauty of earthworks is that they reflect natural patterns and processes. And that is in itself beautiful. So it's not difficult to make some beautiful restoration art. And the best way to see it really is from the air. You know, I've flown over Baz's place at Polpa and the works that we did while I wore out boots, mapping out contours and things. It's just beautiful to see how we've married into the landscape and enhanced it. And it all kind of makes sense. And it is really beautiful. And the same with Mashi's work at Catalpa. It, it, it is artistic and it has to be artistic if it's mimicking or fitting the landscape patterns and processes. Yeah, I love seeing water just flowing where it should be flowing and not down erosion gullies. I just love seeing water just sort of meandering through the landscape rather than rushing off. Yeah, and you just see all these plant species coming back, but also like animal species coming back. And what really gets me excited is how it's improving agricultural productivity, but at the same time, it's improving the environment. So you've got this dual benefit, and I really like that. It's We're achieving both on the same parcel of land. It's not like, oh, over there in that corner is the conservation paddock, and over here we've got the agricultural paddock. No, it's, it's all happening on the same parcel of land. There's a bit of a dual outcome with agricultural and environmental, but just recently, in the last sort of year or two, we've been working with the local Aboriginal community and have been using these sort of techniques to also protect Aboriginal cultural heritage sites, sites that have been there for hundreds or thousands of years. So when we start to stop the erosion, we're actually protecting those sites so that the Aboriginal local community is on board with all this. You know, landholders are really excited about that as well. Yeah, I, I like how it's sort of achieving multiple goals. The Pastoral Potty is brought to you by Western Local Land Services and is supported through funding from the Australian Government's National Land Care Program. The episode was mixed and edited by me, Edgar Grestet, and a big thanks to all our guests for their time and insights. To catch all the other episodes, subscribe to the show and please share it with a mate. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.